motivational speaker with more than 1.5 million books sold. A portion of the proceeds will go to the Northfield Women's Center. Purchase your tickets for $25 from Petalina at 313 Division Street South in Northfield or by scanning the QR code on posters posted at various places around town. See you at breakfast on the 14th. Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we take a look at specific policy subjects, and we have a guest on the show that is an expert in their field. We do our best to stay away from partisan talking points. Instead, we concentrate on research and the expertise of our guests to help frame policy debates and the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects from local and municipal concerns to state and even national level issues. Everything is fair game. Our object is civil, thoughtful dialogue and important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. My name is Rich Larson. And I'm Chris Chapp. Today on Public Policy This Week, we're going to do a way too early state of the presidential campaign. <laughs> uh, even though presidential election is over a year away, the primary campaigning season is well underway. We'll try to give a broad overview, looking at the state of play for both Democrats and Republicans. Our guest today is Christopher Galdieri, professor of political science at St. Anselm College. Professor Galdieri is really the perfect person to talk to on this. New Hampshire, where St. Anselm is located, is presidential primary central, and St. Anselm is home to the New Hampshire Institute of Politics, a must-stop location for virtually every candidate who hopes to get their party's nomination. Not only has Professor Galdieri had a front-row seat to, New, to the uh, New Hampshire primary since 2008, his research also cuts to the core of what makes politics fun and interesting. I'll give a shout-out to two of his fabulous books, Stranger in a Strange State, the Politics of Carpetbagging, from Robert Kennedy to Scott Brown, and his second book, Donald Trump and New Hampshire Politics. Chris has a BA in government from Georgetown, a PhD from the University of Minnesota, where, full disclosure, we were grad school classmates and friends. I will say that from personal experience, Chris possesses an encyclopedic knowledge of politics and a true passion for campaigns and elections that stands out even among other people who geek out on electoral politics. So we are really grateful to have him on the program today. Professor Galdieri, welcome to Public Policy This Week. We're excited to have you on the show, especially since uh, uh, off camera or off uh, mic, uh, we were just having a fantastic conversation about uh, the politics of James Madison versus Captain America. And this, I, I hope we can get into this at some point later on today. <laughs> well, Thank you. That's a fantastic introduction. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> well, Chris, what I want to do is kind of um, start with the Democrats and then move to sure. Republicans where there's there's sort of um, maybe more action happening. Um, but 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 starting with Democrats, there's some interesting business as well. The primary calendar switch in particular. So New Hampshire, where you're located, mm -hmm. uh, used to have the first in the nation primary. And I guess depending on who you ask, it might still have the first in the nation primary. <laughs> Uh, but in February, Democrats voted to give this status to South Carolina with Nevada and New Hampshire coming second. Of course, states run elections, not the national party. Could you just talk about this change a little bit? And is this going to have any effect on, on Biden's presumptive nomination in 2024? 
Sure. Um, so New Hampshire um, has had the first primary in the presidential primary cycle uh, going back to the 19 teens. Uh, it didn't really set out to do that. It happened by accident. Um, in, I think, 1912 or 1916, a bunch of states added presidential primaries. And after a few years, they were like, wow, presidential primaries are terrible. Nobody votes in them. They're expensive. They don't mean anything because you're just electing delegates. They weren't at that time pledged to anybody. Um, but New Hampshire kept it and wound up having the earliest one for various reasons. It was uh, linked to uh, town meeting day, which is a thing a lot of places in New England have. Um, over the years, candidates started coming up here and figuring out, okay, well, if I, you know, make a splash in New Hampshire, mm -hmm. I can, uh, maybe that'll help me get my party's nomination. People will pay attention, people will pay attention to me. But, um, in recent years, New Hampshire has come under a lot of criticism from Democrats for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that the Democrats have increasingly become the party of diversity. Uh, and New Hampshire is one of the least diverse states in the nation. Uh, it's, you know, you're, you're looking at a state that is something like 92% white. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks in the Democratic Party are like, look, this, the, the backbone of our party um, is black voters and brown voters and young voters. And you've got this old white state in New England. Why is this state getting pride of place? You also have a lot of um, more establishment or mainline Democrats who were not thrilled by how well Bernie Sanders did here in 2016. Mm. Uh, and who were looking ahead and saying, well, maybe, you know, that's not not the way to keep winning national elections. Um, and then you had, uh, I think, the cherry on top of the Sunday for Democrats was Joe Biden um, winning the nomination in 2020 after he did terribly here. I think he placed fifth, uh, but winning in a landslide in South Carolina. And that was basically the ballgame. Uh, so when the DNC met a few years ago, these things all sort of came to the fore and they proposed a calendar where South Carolina would lead off a few days later, Nevada and New Hampshire would go at the same time. And then the other states would, would follow. Um, and that's, that's been controversial to say the least. So how are Democrats in New Hampshire taking the change? But my understanding is by law, you have to hold your primary first. Right. Um, back in the 1970s, the state realized what it had uh, and passed a law that said New Hampshire's has to hold its primary uh, at least seven days before any other state holds a similar contest. And it gave the power to set the uh, timing of the primary entirely to the secretary of state, which is pretty unusual. In most mm -hmm. states, when you hear that they're moving their primary, it means the legislature has had to pass a bill to do that. The governor's had to sign it. They've set the date in the law. Um, it's a really tough process. It's a cumbersome process. It involves partisan folks who might, you know, for whatever reason, not want their party to go at a certain time or the other party to go at a certain time. Uh, in New Hampshire, we have a secretary of state who is chosen by the legislature, who's nonpartisan, uh, and whose job, first and foremost, is to protect the primary. Hmm. So, wow. um that's still the case. We haven't changed our law. The DNC said to New Hampshire, OK, we've changed our schedule. Uh, so now you need to pass a law and get rid of this primary that your mm -hmm. state likes. And right now we have a Republican legislature and a Republican governor um, who are just like, 
no, we're not doing that. <laughs> and the Democrats turned out not to have a plan B for when this happened. Yeah. You know, it's it's like you tell your 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 five year old it's time for bed and they say no. Well, you know how to escalate that. Right. <laughs> right. Involve, you just pick him up and carry him into the bedroom. Uh, you can't do that to the state of New Hampshire and its legislature. It's very large. It has 424 members. Um, so, yeah, we're sort of at an impasse here. And I guess uh, the DNC has extended the deadline a couple of times. The most recent one just whizzed past on September 1st. And if anybody has said anything on that front, I haven't heard it. Um, so the game of chicken continues. Uh, the Secretary of State has said, you know, we're going first no matter what. Uh, and if that complicates life for Joe Biden, we don't care. Hmm. Um, Democrats in the state are furious uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one is because hosting the primary is really good for them. Mm -hmm. um, it gives them influence. It means that everybody in their party who's thinking about running for president comes here, speaks at party fundraisers, shows up at county party events and candidate forums and stuff like that. Uh, if you're a senator or a congresswoman from New Hampshire, um, you have kind of an inside line to folks who want to be president. That's a really, really nice thing. The other reason they're mad uh, is because up until about 30 years ago, New Hampshire was one of the most Republican states in the country. Um, it's really tough to overstate it, but like there was a natural order to the universe. And the natural order was that Republicans <laughs> controlled New Hampshire that Republicans carried New Hampshire in presidential elections unless like, you know, it was a Lyndon Johnson type landslide. Mm -hmm. um, that's not the case anymore. And it's largely because um, Democrats have been able to take advantage of uh, economic changes in the state, demographic changes in the state. Um, and really, you know, they've done 30 years of trench warfare to turn this into a purple state. And the feeling that a lot of them have is, so our reward is that they're taking the primary away. Remind me what South Carolina has ever done for the Democratic Party. Right. How many Democrats does it send to Congress? What, so, you know, the, the day after Election Day 2016, did a Democrat declare victory in a Senate race in South Carolina? Oh, no, that was here. <laughs> so. So, yeah, Democrats are not happy. Yeah. Now. So then heading, I mean, the Democratic Party heading into 2024, uh, the newest, most recent, most important election of our lifetimes. Um, mm -hmm. Does the Democratic Party like does is the Democratic Party just do they just want to show, hey, how chaotic everything is in the Democratic Party right right off the bat? It really se seems that way. Um, and it just strikes me as this huge unforced error. Um, you know, earlier you mentioned, you know, what does this mean for Biden? Well, under the rules the DNC proposed, if you're a state that is trying to jump the line, according to the DNC schedule, uh, candidates aren't supposed to campaign there. Mm. Uh, if you're a candidate and you campaign there, you can face sanctions like not being invited to appear at future debates. Uh, if you're the state, you can face sanctions like your delegates won't get a vote at the national convention. Um what this means for 2024 is that Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., the sitting president of the United States seeking a second term, probably can't actually file to appear on the ballot here oh, without facing sanctions from his own party's national committee. 
So is this a standoff between your secretary of state and Joe Biden then like to say like kind of well, it's, it's more standoff between the state of New Hampshire and the DNC and right. Biden's caught right. in the middle. Right. So, you know, the people who have filed uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Yep. An anti-vaccine conspiracy theorist. Uh, Marianne Williamson, um, who, who, you know, she's a friend of Oprah. <laughs> uh, and, and ran last time. Um, and I think the fear folks have is, oh, my God, what happens if Democrats show up on primary day 2024, whenever it is, and they're handed a ballot that has Kennedy, Williamson, and nobody else? Right in name here. Are enough Democrats going right in Biden? Well, you probably need somebody to drop a few million dollars here for mailers and TV ads saying, OK, Democrats, um, Forget all the drama. Just write in Biden, mm-hmm. please, mm-hmm. Uh, and hope that the folks who turn out aren't, you know, folks who think, oh, Robert Kennedy, I liked him in 1968. Whatever happened to him? I guess he's running this year uh, and, and, and fill in the circle next to him, thinking that he's, you know, a normal Kennedy. Um, so, you know, I don't think Biden loses the primary, but he... You know, he th- there's just so many extra things that Democrats have to worry about now yeah. um, that they wouldn't have had they left things alone. Yeah, it becomes and, part of the news cycle where. Yeah, know. exactly. It's just a bad news cycle. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at, you know, a lot of mainstream news outlets, they seem really furious that Biden is not facing a major challenger um, from mm-hmm. like an actual serious substantive challenger. Like mm-hmm. I've talked to so many reporters over the last three years who are like, but Biden can't run again. Right. He's too old. Uh, somebody else is going to run, right? Why isn't Gretchen Whitmer getting in? Why right. isn't uh, uh, J.B. Pritzker? Why, you know, all these things. And it's like, Newsom. no, it's Joe Biden. He's the sitting president. He's running again. Unless something, you know, some dramatic health thing happens, mm-hmm. uh, he is going to run for a second term and get nominated, and then the voters will decide if he gets it or not. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think the aftermath of a closer than expected primary or something would just be you know just a week or so of headaches for the biden campaign in the white house so i've got to at least ask the question um Mm -hmm. you know biden doesn't face any serious challenges but kennedy has gathered some media attention mostly for these you know conspiracy theories is there any sort of serious contest on the Democratic side? Would he peel away some voters potentially? Any any ramifications of this? Yeah, I I don't think that's likely mm. um, for a couple of reasons. One is that Kennedy, like after initially doing a bunch of events in the state, his campaign now is almost exclusively media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't mean media in terms of paid advertising uh, and mailers, but like he's just spending a lot of time going on podcasts and talking to media outlets and most of them have been you know not just conservative but really right-wing outlets you know stuff in the order of newsmax and the steve bannon podcast and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. um and that's not the sort of thing that helps you win democrats votes in new hampshire um the other is he doesn't seem to be holding events in the state um and that's hurting him i think if you you know, if you want to mount a serious challenge to a sitting president in New Hampshire, the way to do mm-hmm. that is you basically move here. Mm-hmm. You hold events here mm-hmm. for a year. You recruit people to knock on doors for a year. You know, that's what Gene McCarthy did. That's what Ronald Reagan did in um, 1976. That's what Pat Buchanan did in 92. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
Uh, I just don't see evidence that Kennedy is doing that kind of campaign. Um, most of the polling that's come out has shown his numbers have gone way down um, since the beginning of the summer um, as his campaign has become much more about, OK, I'm going to go talk to, you know, the, you know, uh, one American News Network or something like that. Um, <laughs> Most Democrats don't it, know how to find One American News Network on their. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I don't know how to find it, uh, <laughs> and, and I have a I have a doctorate in political science, not in you know navigating the Xfinity app on my Roku. Right. But um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's you know I I think it's really unlikely that it does any lasting damage, but it's just it's just a headache. Yeah. Um, it's a headache that the White House, I think, didn't have to have. Uh, and the fear is, oh, you know, everybody's getting bored because Trump looks like he's romping to the nomination. Uh, let's pay attention to Kennedy. Yeah. And you if Biden's facing sanctions for campaigning here, that means you can't do the sort of thing that you normally do, which is bring the president up here. Have him give some speeches. Uh, have him, you know use all the powers of his office to flatter local party leaders and remind people to vote for him and all that. And, and he can't do that. He can't send the vice president. He can't send, um, you know, uh, others, maybe he could send other surrogates. I don't know. Uh, but it's, it's just, it is a headache that he didn't have to have. Professor Galdieri, Biden seems to be from, from, from my perspective, um, taking the standard incumbent approach, uh, to an election, just sort of um, standing back from uh, all the, uh, the, the the chaos and 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 mm -hmm. looking down upon the fray. Um, but the last time I checked, uh, President Biden's approval rating was somewhere around forty yeah. percent. Um, yes, there are strong economic numbers. Yes, there's a there's a strong uh, legislative uh, record. But what do you make of his approach? Uh, heading into all of this, especially given what you're talking about in, in New Hampshire. Yeah, um, you know, it, I think it, you're right that it, this is exactly what incumbents do. This is what Barack Obama did in 2012. It's what Ronald Reagan did in uh, 84. It's what Bill Clinton and George W. Bush did in their reelection campaigns. And I think, you know, presidents do that because it's, I think, the best option available to them. And I think Biden really feels like Focus on governing, focus on being president. So the contrast will be, oh, look, I'm visiting, you know, uh, Florida after a hurricane or I'm giving a speech on the economy or I'm visiting a, an electric vehicle plant. You know, those sorts of, you know, presidential photo op remarks sorts of things. Um, I think what makes this more complicated for him is that one of his rivals and his most likely rival um, keeps dominating the news because he keeps getting indicted. And he, 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 you know, so it's a dynamic that, you know, you don't we've never seen this before. Um, we've never seen a candidate for president who is himself a former president dominate the news cycle for three days because, oh, he got a mugshot now. This is mm -hmm. this is the this is your, the jurisdiction that's actually going to do the mugshot. Um, so I'm not sure it's it's enough, but I also don't know what else he could be doing. You know, Biden has been avoiding commenting on Trump's legal um, travails, and I think that's smart. He doesn't want it to look like he's directing this or instructing the right. DOJ to indict his uh, leading opponent. Um, but as the campaign goes on and if trump really is going to be the nominee then do you talk about it 
Uh, do you, like, how do you talk about it? It's it's just it's it's a really weird dynamic, and I'm not sure anybody knows how to navigate it. Well, and you know, we were talking earlier about how teaching political science has become difficult. It, it used to be the case that we could walk into a classroom and say that economic evaluations uh, or economic performance is going to, you know, guarantee good mm-hmm. economic performance would guarantee mm-hmm. an incumbent yep. reelection. Yep. And really since uh, 2008-ish or uh, 2010-ish, economic numbers have become sort of detethered from from voting. Um to the point where like some of the usual predictors of who's going to win, who's not going to win are, you know, this is the the polarized era that we live in now. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, I, that has a bunch of effects, um, you know, for voting people perceive the economy through their uh, partisan colored lenses. So if you see economic numbers and you're a Democrat, you're like, Oh, this is great. Unemployment is, down the economy is growing inflation's down gas prices are down this is great and if you're a republican you don't believe it uh and you also Mm -hmm. say oh sure maybe those things are true but uh gas prices are still high inflation is still higher than most people are used to Mm -hmm. um you you know it's you know sort of a well which reality do you live in sort of thing and Mm -hmm. we've sort of made it into like a well just just pick the one you like and live there and and we'll see how it goes and and, uh i I think also a lot of americans don't believe either they don't buy the economic numbers or they think they're lucky like oh i'm doing okay in this economy but clearly everybody else must be doing Mm -hmm. terribly because gas is you know 399 uh and and you know i've got a job but clearly you know other people must be out of work for that sort of thing or you know in the debate a couple weeks ago you had republicans republicans talking about getting people back to work unemployment was like three and a half percent everybody's back to work in the aggregate um like there's no there, there are very few people to get back to work um but if you think the economy must be awful because there's a Democrat in the White House, then, you know, you're, right. you hear that in debate and you think, oh, that, that's that's who I'm voting for. Yeah. OK, can we keep this? I want to keep this out of the, the, the muck as much as possible and, and mm-hmm. have a straight like constitu- constitutionality, uh, constitutionally t- talk about the the uh, a candidate running for president who is a under federal indictment or possibly be been convicted of a felony. Now, mm-hmm. I mean, my, my political science, uh, uh, degree is 32 years old now. So it, it, sometimes it feels more like a history degree than anything else. But I am under the assumption that if you are co- convicted of a felony, particularly of a, a federal felony, you are disqualified from running for president. Am I wrong? You are wrong. You are wrong. I am yeah. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You can, you can be a convicted felon. Uh, you can run for president from jail. In 1920, uh, Eugene V. Debs was the Socialist Party's nominee, uh, and he was in prison for uh, his anti-World War I activities um, and ran from prison. Now, he was a minor party candidate who was never going to win, but he still got a million votes, which was a huge chunk of... Uh, of the popular vote back in 1920. Um, You can't vote in a lot of states if you're a felon or if you're in prison, but that's a separate thing from Mm -hmm. uh, running for office. So 
that's that constitutionally, you know, the only requirements are that you be over 35 and a citizen and have lived here for a certain number of years and that sort of thing. But yeah, you can be a felon. The the framers, I think, expected that, well, people would never vote for someone who was a felon, <laughs> uh, particularly for president. The electors would stop it, right? The electors would only choose from the um, most eminent citizens of the day. And uh, yeah, we got yeah. Donald Trump and the electors voted for him. So <laughs> now the the one the one wrinkle to all this is Debs was convicted of sedition, right? Mm-hmm. And not insurrection. Chris, do you want to talk about uh, maybe yes, maybe the the footnote or the you know why this might be a little bit different this time around? Yeah, so there's this uh, provision of the Fourteenth Amendment that was passed after the Civil War that basically says uh, if you have formerly sworn an oath of allegiance to the United States, which is to say an oath of office, you mm-hmm. know, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, that sort of thing, uh, and subsequently, subsequently engage in insurrection or rebellion against the United States or against the Constitution, you are ineligible to hold any position of public trust unless Congress uh, authorizes you to do so by a two-thirds vote. And this was uh, originally um, aimed at former Confederates. They didn't want to have, or the the uh, Republican Congress after the Civil War, didn't want to have a situation where you know a state like Mississippi might say, "Oh, we're back in the Union. Okay, here's our new senator. His name is Jefferson Davis. Remember him?" Mm-hmm. Um, or or something like that. Or you know, have some some Confederate general uh, be sent to Congress and that sort of thing. Um, it's not exclusively used for that. It has applied to other people in the past. Uh, just in the past few years, uh, there have been a handful of candidates for state office where uh, state judges have said, no, you can't uh, run for county commissioner. You participated in January 6th. You're disqualified under the, the 14th Amendment, Section 3. Um, there's a movement afoot to test that in a bunch of states. Uh, one such um, place is New Hampshire, where a uh, uh, Republican who had run for office in the past um, has met with the Secretary of State and basically said, look, if you read this clause, it clearly applies to Donald Trump. He fomented an insurrection. He tried to overturn the constitutional order. Uh, therefore, he should not be eligible. Um, will this keep him from running? Probably not. Um, but I think there's a very strong chance that this winds up being litigated all the way to the Supreme mm-hmm. Court during the election year. So in addition to all of Trump's other uh, legal headaches, uh, he's going to have to go to court and argue um, argue against this applying to him, um, which is, you know, certainly not anything that I ever thought I would see happen in my lifetime. If you had asked me eight years mm-hmm. ago, do you think you'll ever have to think about the uh, uh, disqualification clause of the 14th Amendment, I would say no. Not any more than I think about that, the host of The Apprentice. Um, and yet here we are, a uh, couple of elections and at least one book later. So, yeah, um, you know, I, I think especially, you know, I could imagine some very blue state uh, deciding that we're just not going to let Trump appear on the ballot. Uh, and the argument there would be, we're treating this the same way we treat the other qualifications, right? You have to be 35 years old. So if, uh, you know, if you're 30 and you go down to your state capital and say, hi, I'd like to file papers to appear on the presidential primary ballot, 
you can't, sir. You're not 35. Or um, if you are a former two-term president, you can't run again. Mm -hmm. So if George W. Bush goes down to the courthouse uh, here in Concord and says, hey, I'm here to file to run for another term as president, uh, they would say, uh, uh, sir, you already did that for two terms. You're constitutionally ineligible to run for president again. Um, So here we are. You know, it's... um, I suspect the Supreme Court will find a way to not apply this hmm. in the case of Trump. And I th- and you hear a lot of folks who say, well, no, this should be decided by voters and that sort of thing. On the other hand, you know, it's pretty clear that this language should apply to Trump. Um, so, yeah, that's where we are. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, 90, FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm your host, Chris Chapp co-hosting with Rich Larson. Our guest today is Professor Chris Galdieri from St. Anselm College. So we've been talking about Trump's eligibility. Um, Let's talk Mm -hmm. about just Trump as a campaigner. And you wrote a book about Trump in New Hampshire, um, arguing that the New Hampshire operation really saved his candidacy. Can Trump recapture some some of this magic from 2016 or have dynamics just changed too dramatically? Well, I mean, I think a lot of the dynamics actually make it more likely that he wins. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in 2016, he won a lot of primaries with 30 to 40 percent of the vote. So all through until almost the very end of the primary calendar, there kept being these signs that, well, maybe he's slipping. Maybe there's an opening here. Um, it never quite stopped him but he really had to you know work for that nomination Mm -hmm. um he benefited from his opponents um the guy he lost to in iowa was ted cruz if you went into a lab and tried to design a republican who was poorly suited to do well in new hampshire you'd come up with somebody a lot like ted cruz somebody uh from a southern state somebody who is very much a social conservative um, you know, New Hampshire Republicans for for a very long time have been much more, I don't want to say moderate, but much more uh, libertarian minded, uh, mm-hmm. much more um, about low taxes and low regulation. But we're not re- we don't really we're not about abortion and gay marriage and and all the other that, you know, if you do what do what you want, we just want low taxes. We live really like low taxes. Live free or die. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Live free or die. Um so compared to that now, and Trump is routinely polling well above 50 percent, uh, none of his challengers has really seemed to, you know, put any fear into him or, um, you know, really figured out a way to attack him that works. Um, the only problem is he's under indictment in four jurisdictions for 91 crimes. <laughs> Uh, so, um, you know, I, I think, you know, there's there's that, you know, lingering possibility. Well, maybe that will, you know, lead to something happening. Uh, maybe he gets convicted in one of these jurisdictions early on. Right. Georgia seems to want to move very aggressively mm-hmm. um, in terms of of um, having this trial. Uh, maybe he cuts a plea deal that involves agreeing to never run for office again, ever. And, you know, getting up and saying everything I said about the 2020 election was a lie. Um, you know, that, something like that. Uh, then there's the other one nobody likes to talk about. He's 77 years old and exists on Diet Coke and Big Macs. Yeah. Uh, so there's always, you know, a health 
possibility. And that's what you get anytime you have a candidate of a certain age. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just a huge X factor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think Trump is probably as well positioned as he could be. And I think better positioned than 2016, unless one of the things that could go wrong goes wrong. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about his challengers. Um, mm-hmm. The debate in Milwaukee uh, it, it's it's really interesting. I mean, tr- Trump didn't show up for the debate in Milwaukee, but uh, they they had it anyway. And um, I I I have to admit I did not watch the debate, but I, everything I've read sounded like Nikki Haley uh, distinguished herself pretty well in that uh, in that debate. Uh, but I don't suddenly see any um, headlines saying that Nikki Haley is now the front runner or the mm-hmm. you know uh, any presumptive anything for the Republican nomination. Um, from your perspective, uh, Professor Galdieri, who are the winners and losers out of the out of the debate? And uh, are they is, is everyone just really competing to be Trump's running mate at this point? Yeah, I don't know about their competing to be his running mate, um, but I think it's more like they're running in this sort of parallel primary. It almost feels like model UN or model Congress where they want to be the one at the top of the heap in the event that something takes Trump out of the race. Um, And that could be, you know, Republican voters realize, wait, this guy is under indictment for a bunch of crimes. Maybe we should go with somebody who's not. Um, I I think on the other hand, you know, it's it's hard for me to see Nikki Haley winding up as his running mate uh, because she said the words out loud during the debate. Donald Trump nationally is not popular. Mm -hmm. Uh, He would be more likely than most of the people on that stage to lose to Joe Biden. Uh, in a head-to-head matchup. Um, But note that nobody else knew how to respond to that. Um, It was like, you know, a big family dinner where somebody, you know, talks about Bruno, even though we don't talk about Bruno, Mm -hmm. and everybody (laughs) else reacts by just pretending that didn't happen and and asking somebody else to pass the yams. Um, That said, I think Haley did have a really good debate. Um, You know, Haley has not really set the world on fire with this campaign. But she's somebody with, you know, I, I, you know, if I were a realtor, I would say her candidacy has a good foundation and solid bones. Uh, she's a former governor. She's relatively young. She's the only woman in the field. Um, she can speak to questions of diversity because of her Indian American background. But she's also, um, you know, she's a military wife. She can speak to evangelical audiences. She has been like emphasizing her status as a mother and talking about the education issues that Republicans really seem to be caring about um, in this in this primary. Uh, she recognized in a way that I don't really think any of those other candidates did the danger Republicans find themselves in on abortion. And I think we'll probably talk about mm-hmm. that more later. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there was you know, there's a lot to make Republicans take a second and third and fourth look at her. Uh, there's also, you know, I thought Mike Pence had a surprisingly good night. Um, you know, I think he brought, uh, a surprising amount of gravitas to the debate. Uh, he's clearly running, um, as an old guard Reagan conservative. Um, but he's also, uh, making a very strong appeal, uh, or very emphatic appeal to evangelical voters. Like he was basically like, no, we need a national ban on abortion. Why? Because that's what I believe. And anybody who else says something is pandering to liberals and Democrats and all the rest of it. Um, and I thought, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, um, I, I think, you know, everybody on the debate stage wanted to throttle him by the end of the Mm -hmm. night. But I think in terms of getting exposure to a national audience, uh, hitting all of the points he wanted to make, uh, you know, clearly running 
on his persona more than any particular issue. Um, probably had the night that he wanted to have. Is Ramaswamy running to be Trump's running mate? That I think is possible. Um, and I, I think I think he's probably somebody who would be on the short list. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, if Trump wanted to go in a more mainstream direction, I think Tim Scott would be um, mm -hmm. uh, a strong possibility there. Uh, and not a ton of downside for Scott. You know, if he wins, he becomes vice president to somebody who <laughs> uh, can't run again in 2028. Um, for now. If he loses, well, maybe that sets him up for 2028. And he can say, hey, you know, I might have criticized him, but I was also his running mate uh, and that sort of thing. Um, so, so, yeah. I, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you know, just changing gears a little. One name you didn't yeah. mention uh, is Ron DeSantis, who yes. is is still polling higher than anybody else other than anybody else in the second tier, you know, anybody other than Trump. Yeah. Uh, but his campaign seems to be in some disarray. His polling numbers have been uh, sliding pretty, pretty dramatically. What do you what advice would you give yeah. to Ron DeSantis to, to save his campaign? That's tough. I mean, he is in this incredibly difficult strategic position, right? Uh, he spent years sort of pumping himself up as uh, Trump, but better. Uh, mm -hmm. Everything you liked about Trump, but none of the liabilities, none of the scandals, none of the drama. Um, and smarter. He went, yeah, yeah, smarter Trump, exactly. Uh, and you know, he went, you know, hard right during COVID, uh, you know, Florida is open for business, you know, let's attack Disney, you know, all, all those sorts of things. Um, but, you know, he doesn't like as a presidential candidate, he has not been able to to build on that. Uh, Trump started hitting him really hard, really early, and he doesn't seem to have recovered. Uh, you know, Trump was running ads on Fox News earlier this year attacking mm -hmm. DeSantis for talking about uh, reforming Social Security, for cutting Medicare. Well, you know who watches Fox News? Old Republicans who vote in primary elections. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those are folks who are like, wait, wait, he wants to do what to the two things that, that I, the two issues I care about, uh, the two places where I'm a big government socialist. Um, <laughs> so he, you know, he just hasn't been able to get any traction. Uh, he is not a good retail politician. Yeah. You know, he is stiff yeah. and awkward around you know, around strangers. And I, you know, say this with no small degree of sympathy. I, you know, hell to me is a cocktail party, <laughs> uh, let alone one where, you know, I'm asking people to vote for me and trying to make a personal connection. But, you know, he's just he's not good at it. Um, you know, he will shake at events. He will shake a couple hands and then try to get out of there as quickly as he can. Um, at one event, I don't know if it was here or in Iowa or another state, um, but toward the end of the event, somebody shouted over, Governor, there's a D-Day veteran over here. Now, a normal politician beelines for that guy, shakes his hand, takes some pictures, asks him about his 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 life, thanks mm -hmm. him for his service, mm -hmm. uh, and DeSantis just sort of waved, thank you for your service, and kept going. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's just, it's just bad. Um, so for him, you know, he's talking now about, you know, trying to go full John McCain and have lots of town halls and everything. But uh, John McCain loved doing that. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. John McCain loved talking to reporters. 
Part of the reason John McCain always got good press is because he would sit in the back of his bus and talk to reporters all day long. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he enjoyed it. It wasn't like a chore. He wasn't on guard. He would say whatever came into Mm -hmm. into his head. Um, And DeSantis hasn't been doing that. DeSantis does not have great relationships uh, with the press. Certainly not, you know, buddy, buddy, let's, uh, you know, talk as though I weren't a reporter and you weren't running for president sort of relationship. It's just not there. Um, so I think he needs, you know, he needs to figure something out, but I don't know what that is. And if I did, I would be a much wealthier and famouser political scientist. <laughs> Chris Christie seems to be taking the, uh, the stance of representing the, the Lynn Cheney, uh, uh, mm-hmm. wing of the Republican party. There's a guy that does, uh, understand retail politics. There's a guy who's got some decent, uh, political instincts and doesn't mind talking to reporters. Um, Yet I don't feel Chris Christie getting a lot of traction. What uh, what's your take on Chris Christie right now? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, and I, I think you know um, you know Christie is I think the most uh, um, solidly anti-Trump candidate in this race. You know he's been saying from the start, no, what he did was bad. He should not be president again. Our party should not be nominating somebody like this. If we nominate him, it will be a disaster. Um, but I think, you know, he's struggling. He, with, with fundraising, he doesn't have a large organization. Um, you know, it's, it's really tough. I think if anybody was going to do the John McCain model, uh, and, and do well at it, it's probably him. Um, but I just don't know, um, if his campaign even has the sort of infrastructure you need to do that, because even if you're running a bare bones campaign, somebody still has to call the town and be like, can we, can we use your auditorium? Can we, mm-hmm. you know, set up in the high school gym or something? And then, you know, can you set up 300 chairs and tell the press where it's going to be and all, all the rest of that stuff? And I'm not sure how much more of Christie campaign there is than Christie at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, another another candidate you mentioned earlier that fascinates me is Nikki Haley, because, as you said, mm-hmm. sort of strong foundation um, on paper seems like a great candidate. Last I checked, polling around 6%, though, um, among Republican primary voters. What does Nikki Haley have to do to, to, you know, elevate the the status of her candidacy? Yeah, I think, you know, she's doing all the things you you would tell her to do. You know, she has been really going all in with traveling all over New Hampshire. Uh, She, more than I think any of the other candidates, has been visiting, uh, you know, the smaller towns uh, in the north and west of the state. Um, And for folks who aren't familiar with New Hampshire, basically, there's uh, the southeastern portion of the state, uh, the southern portion of the state is I don't want to call my chunk of New Hampshire a suburb of Boston, but uh, there are a lot of folks there who benefit from being close to Boston and commute to work in Massachusetts and that sort of thing. (laughs) Uh, And then as you get more towards the Connecticut River Valley and as you go north, you start getting into, you know, much smaller places, you know, more idiosyncratically New Englandy towns, the stuff you think of, you know, Cracker Barrels and flannel and that sort of thing. Um, uh, And she's been going into those places more than anybody else. I think, you know, and she's got a super PAC on the ad talking about her record as a governor and and as an ambassador at the UN and that sort of thing. Um, But she needs some sort of breakthrough. You know, she didn't have... You know, she had a good debate, but I don't know that the debate had the kind of moment that goes viral, the kind of moment that makes Mm -hmm. uh, the political press corps say, oh, wow, she's she's catching fire. Let's let's take another look here. You know, Mm -hmm. if you think back to uh, 2019 and the Democrats debates, uh, Kamala Harris 
had a really uh, strong moment uh, when she criticized Joe Biden for mm-hmm. his the position he'd held on uh, school busing back in the 1970s. And it didn't you know, make her president, but it did get her a month of really strong uh, coverage and a lot more attention than she had been getting. I think Haley needs to figure out uh, some sort of a breakthrough moment like that. And I think, you know, part of the problem all these candidates face is they're not on a stage with Trump. They can't say anything to his face because his face is down in Mar-a-Lago or uh, in a mugshot in Georgia. Um, so, you know, it, it's just, you know, you're watching the B and C squad criticize each other. And so right. it's like the JV team playing an exhibition against themselves. Uh, and yeah. it just doesn't give you the kind of drama that you want uh, if you're a candidate struggling to get noticed. Okay, but one of the candidates who probably has had more FaceTime than with, with Trump than anybody else is Mike Pence. Um, yeah. You recently uh, had a little bit of experience with, with, with uh, the former vice president. D- does he believe he can win? I don't know. Um, I saw him speak. He spoke at our campus uh, today's Friday, right? So mm-hmm. uh, Wednesday afternoon. Um, and I took two of my classes uh, to see him. And he spoke about basically he was criticizing populism uh, and saying that the Republican Party needs to be more in the vein of Reagan style conservatism. And it was very much about his own political evolution and his own you know, like meeting uh, Ronald Reagan when he was a, when Pence was a young candidate for Congress in the late 80s and and that sort of thing. Uh, and he was, you know, trying to do an awful lot in about you know, 35 minutes time, he was Mm -hmm. trying to criticize Trump without naming Trump, take credit for everything Trump did that conservative Republicans might have liked, uh, while also attacking liberals. At one point in one sentence, he attacked liberals, socialists, progressives, and the woke agenda. Um, But then he said, well, populism (laughs) has a lot in common with those folks that we don't like. Um, And it was, it was just, you know, he's, you know, I, I was talking to a reporter afterwards and I said, you know, it's like watching one of those contestants on the floor is lava where he's trying to hop from <laughs> one idea to another without falling in. Uh, and I don't know. Um, and, and then the mechanics of the campaign, um, you know, one of the rules of campaign events is don't leave any empty seats. Mm. Well, you know, there were empty seats like right up front where he was. Yeah. So and there was no yeah. staffer going around. I, I always you know try to sit way in the back so I can I can observe at these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when I tried to do that with Mitt Romney in 2011, you know, three different staffers were like, sir, there's room up front. Wouldn't you like a better view of the governor? Um, nobody did that. Nobody was mm, was caring. You know, there were students who were coming in late because they'd had class or whatever. Uh, and nobody was there saying, oh, why don't you sit right up here and get a great view of the vice president? Um, mm. So it's tough. And again, I think he's another one where he's struggling to put an actual campaign together. You know, I think he, you know, his fundraising was just enough to get him on the debate stage last time. But I don't know how many people he's got working for him. I don't know that he's attracting volunteers. Uh, I think, you know, at his events, he's getting a lot of polite curiosity. He's not getting believers who are like yes you are selling the thing that i want to buy um and it's just you know it's it's a very odd thing to watch 
For our listeners, you're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm your host, Rich Larson. My co-host is Chris Chap, And our guest today is Professor Chris Galdieri, an expert on electoral politics from, from St. Anselm College in New Hampshire. Okay, Professor Galdieri, with just a little more than 10 minutes left in the show, uh, we've gotten through the majority of this conversation without bringing up a single political issue. Um, and maybe that just fa- uh, yeah, reflects the, the era <laughs> we're in. I, I, don't, I don't know. But um, there are political issues out there, and, and, and uh, there are factions developing on the right and the left. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Republicans, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, Trump, and one of the things, uh, uh, a, a driving wedge uh, that, that sort of... Um, Trump as a driving wedge, I should say, but mm-hmm. there are other things too. Let's let's have some fun. Let's talk about abortion. Um, okay. Post Dobbs and post midterms, uh, GOP candidates seem to be walking a little bit of a tightrope when it comes to abortion. What are your thoughts? Yeah, um, I think you know we, we saw a genuine policy debate uh, during the Republican debate. You know, uh, you had Mike Pence taking, uh, you know, the the um, you know. 100% anti-abortion position. No, we need a national ban, period. Why? Because uh, I think it's the right thing to do, and I don't think we should be thinking about electoral concerns on such a momentous issue. Uh, and then you had Nikki Haley, who's like, wait, 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 no, that we, we can, let's figure out like maybe some sort of a national policy, uh, but still leave some room on the front end. And let's reassure women that nobody's going to jail for having an abortion or trying to have an abortion. Uh, and I think the party is genuinely torn, uh, whether that's because of principle or whether it's because um, of the politics of the issue uh, is a good question. But, you know, Democrats have been winning elections they had no business winning mm-hmm. um, because of the Dobbs decision. Uh, if you look at states where there have been referenda, even in places like Kansas, um, you know, mm-hmm. which we all think of as a really conservative state, um, and uh, abortion ban could not uh, survive a referendum. Um, Ohio looks likely to protect um, abortion rights in uh, its constitution after a referendum that's coming up this fall. Uh, in Wisconsin, a Democrat easily won a Supreme Court mm-hmm. election, mm-hmm. largely because of the abortion issue. So this has really turned into a huge loser for Republicans, and Republicans have not figured out how to deal with this. Um, you know, they're talking about, oh, maybe it's a terminology problem. Maybe we should use different language. And I, I don't think that's it. I think, you know, um, this has become something that, you know, if you have ever uh, been associated with a pregnancy or possibly been associated with a pregnancy, this is an issue uh, that you are aware of and care about. Um, and I think Democrats are probably going to hammer this particular drum uh, all the way through the 2024 election. And it might be one of those issues where the, the politics of a presidential primary is a poor fit for the politics of a general election. What, what wins you one yeah. doesn't win you the other. Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. Um, Maybe not in New Hampshire, but especially when you get into states like South Carolina, um, which come, you know, right after even Iowa has uh, taken a very sharp uh, turn to the right, particularly on social issues over the last 10 years or so. Um, You know, I think you don't get you don't win that caucus. You don't win that primary um, by saying, let's find a reasonable middle ground that will make people stop being mad at us. 
uh, you win those primaries by saying we're right. And anybody who says we're right, we're wrong uh, is just, you know, just just on the wrong side of history. And, and we're going to keep doing the right thing that we know is right. Um, and as you said, I think that does, you know, could lead to uh, disaster uh, for Republicans in the in the 2024 election. Another issue, you know, it's it's. Voters typically aren't foreign policy voters. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we see sort of more domestic economic issues usually ruling the day. But Ukraine uh, and support for Ukraine seems to be driving a bit of a wedge in the party. We saw this at the debate a little bit. Mm-hmm. Does support for Ukraine have the potential to to have some legs uh, in in this primary? I think it's possible um, in large part because, you know, clearly there are candidates who see that as a viable line of attack. Right. Mm-hmm. Think about um, uh, Ramaswamy, not just uh, criticizing the Biden administration's position on it, but criticizing his fellow candidates in really like sort of weird Internet troll terms, like saying something like, oh, you're Pope Zelensky. And it's like, what? <laughs> what what on earth are you talking about? Um uh, and then you had, you know, really impassioned defenses from folks like Chris Christie, who, uh, you know, undertook a trip to uh, uh, to Ukraine earlier in his campaign. Um, so you've got sort of like the, you know, the old guard Republican foreign policy hands um, who see this as, oh, this is like, you know, this is an important place to draw a line and keep Putin from expanding and protect a democracy and, and, and all the rest of that. And then the folks who are like, you know, just. Well, liberals like Zelensky, so he must be bad. Um, and, uh, you know, then you've also got the larger thing where, you know, in, in the more fevered parts of the political discourse, you know, there are all these things. Well, you know, remember that thing with Joe Biden and that prosecutor that and, and, and Hunter Biden working for that company? All this Ukraine stuff is tied into that, right? Um, I don't know what that voice was. I'm sorry, everyone. Um, <laughs> but it, you know, it's it, so it's also tied into all this other stuff that Republicans are very uh, worked up about. So I, I think it has the potential to not just uh, divide the party, but to lead to, you know, really weird divisions. Uh, and it sort of forces some Republicans to say they support the Biden administration's policy broadly, which, again, is something you probably don't want to be doing in a Republican primary. Right. Think about Joe Lieberman in 2004, where Mm -hmm. he was down the line liberal Democrat, except on Iraq, where he agreed with George W. Bush on everything. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and he did not do well. Spoiler. You know, this is a little off script and and a little bit outside of the purview of of presidential election politics. But the the, the idea of, as you just said, old school Republican uh, foreign policy, defend democracy, at, at, and, and you know, even the Nixonian be the world's policeman type thing mm-hmm. versus um, this new idea, well, new quote-unquote idea that uh, we let, maybe we let Ukraine do this for itself. Is there a shift? Are we looking at maybe even a referendum in within the Republic policy, Republican uh, Party on a shift to isolationist uh foreign policy yeah i think there is a a you know there's always been a strain of that uh in the republican party Mm -hmm. um i think trump really brought that to the forefront right trump is the guy who does not believe in alliances he believes in Mm -hmm. you know one-on-one deals that you negotiate but if there's a deal somebody must be getting screwed 
Uh, and if I don't know that the other party to the deal is getting screwed, then that means it's me getting screwed. I hope I can say that on the air. Um, and uh, so that's why he was he didn't like NATO. He didn't like trade alliances. He didn't like this. He was much more comfortable with the idea of, oh, well, if the UK wants to do business with the US, then the UK and the US will sit down and work out a deal. But it's got to favor the US, not the UK. Uh, and the idea of something where everybody benefits just doesn't work for him. Um, and I think you add that to the fact that you've got a Democratic president talking about Ukraine in moral terms. Um, I think for a lot of Republicans now, well, that makes it instantly suspect, right? Mm -hmm. If Joe Biden is for this, then we have to be against it. He wouldn't be for this if it was just, you know, the right thing to do. He's got to be on the take or there's got to be some sort of sinister motive or this is going to lead to COVID 2.0 or, or something like that. And eventually you find yourself going down sort of like Marjorie Taylor Green wormhole where, uh, you know, up is down and black is white mm -hmm. and left is mm -hmm. right. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think, you know, this does um, divide Republicans, but that division is not just about this. It's about a whole lot more. It's about like just how do you view the world and how do you view mm -hmm. the United States role on the world stage? Chris, we, we've, we've asked you a lot of questions. Anything we forgot to ask, give you the last word in this. Oh, boy. That's a tough one. We didn't have time to talk about Jimmy Buffett's politics like we've been talking that, about. That's going to be show. a separate show. I think we're going okay. to have to do that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, well I actually, Go ahead. is the Birch Beer at Hogan Brothers as good as I remember? <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's better. It's really good. Oh, it's man. really good. And uh, if I you, wish they could ship that stuff. The the, uh, <laughs> the next time we do one of these shows, if you want to come out, we'll take you to lunch over there. All right. Sounds all good. Right. And I, I, I first of all, I, before we uh, start to wrap up, uh, Professor Gallier, I really want to thank you for joining us on somewhat short notice. And this was fantastic. I hope that we can talk you into coming back on the show, maybe at the beginning of next summer as we head into the uh convention season and maybe even again in next october as we uh, really start to uh, look at the uh the election itself yeah chris and i'll also it sounds fantastic a, it'd be a pleasure extend a thanks it's it's great catching up and it's great uh, kind of hearing dispatches from the front here uh <laughs> and everything that's going on in new hampshire politics all right folks the objective for public policy the, uh this week is to inspire important meaningful in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities we're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 o'clock to 11 a.m. And if you don't catch the program live, you can pull up a podcast of each program on the KYMN website or in any of your favorite podcast services. Just look for our Public Policy This Week logo. Be sure to join us for our next Friday's edition of Public Policy This Week um, when we have a very interesting guest and a very interesting show, but probably not as interesting as uh, Professor Galdieri and his Jimmy Buffett t-shirt. <laughs> Thanks again, Professor Galdieri. We do appreciate your time. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Okay, we're out. Okay. That was well, fantastic. That was